Well, Beller Church family and guests, what a joy it is to be gathered today in this moment. And it is an honor to share the pulpit with a good friend and brother in Christ of mine, David Oyelowo. Now, many of you might recognize you uh, from your widely celebrated career. Perhaps most widely recognizable role that you've played is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from Selma. But not everybody knows you, how many in our church family have gotten to know you as a passionate follower of Christ, along with your wife and four kids. And as you come into this moment that many are joining us in right now, mm. there are many true things about you mm-hmm. as a black man born in England, as a father, a son, a husband, a brother, an actor, mm. but most of all as a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. I consider myself an activist. Um, I consider myself a, 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 a citizen who likes to think of themselves as socially responsible, culturally responsible. I've been afforded a certain platform because of the roles I've played, because of the notoriety I've gained. And so I'm involved in a lot of conversations around what's going on politically, what's going on culturally, what are the systemic changes that we can bring about both in my industry and beyond. But what I also realize is to not deal with this moment spiritually would be to try to build the roof without addressing the foundation. Mm. You cannot build a house top down. It just will not stand. It's illogical. And, you know, when the Bible talks about us not battling against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the high places. What is happening in this country right now, I think is also part of a spiritual battle and has spiritual ramifications for us individually and as a nation. So can you share how you've seen, as you link arms with activists who perhaps don't have their identity grounded in God's heart, How do you see the overlap in your activism with them? But also, can you describe maybe some unique aspects that you bring to the table Mm. solely because of your relationship with Jesus? Well, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that in our weakness, God is strong. And as a black person right now, I have been broken by um, a lot of what has been happening. I have um, had to um, contend with the fact that the wounds I carry in relation to uh, the racism I have faced, um, my parents faced, my ancestors have faced, and my children might face, is something I carry as as a deep wound, as a deep burden. And I have felt God's brokenheartedness over that. And I have seen it in other black people and and brown people I have talked to. Um, And we are crying out for help. Um, We have been crying out for a long time and we find ourselves in a moment where for divine reasons, there is an openness and a receptivity to our cries that hasn't been there, I would argue, ever. The pandemic, as 
um, brutal as it has been for so many of us, has not just for the church, but for humanity generally, it has helped us look beyond ourselves. We have all had to entertain struggle, um, uncertainty, ill health, death. Um, and that combined with the fact that a lot of the things that would normally distract us, going to the movies, uh, restaurants, uh, sports, are not there. And so we as black people right now have a moment where there is a receptivity to our cries that is unusual and unprecedented. Um, before George Floyd, there was Ahmaud Aubrey, there was Breonna Taylor, there was a litany of people who have been um, killed um, at the hand of, of law enforcement. And we have protested, we have made movies, we have made songs, we have, we have done all sorts of things. We have marched, we have had great leaders who have lost their lives for this cause. And there has never been this level of allyship. So what I am feeling is a moment where I think there is a consensus that something is wrong. Something is wrong and has been wrong and it must be made right. We mustn't find ourselves here again. How do we arrive at that? I think back on my journey personally, and I think about how I'm having right now to undo the self-madeness of mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. I went to college and I got my Master's of Divinity and I got my doctorate and I worked hard. And in my learning and in my listening, I'm beginning to realize that there are many other things that I have taken for granted that afforded me the opportunity to even be here right now, mm. simply because of the color of my skin right. and the color of my parents' skin and my grandparents' skin. You know, America is a great nation, indisputably, but it's also a nation that was founded on a paradox, Thomas Jefferson being one of them. And when he penned the words, all men are created equal, I believe he believed that. But any of the 607 enslaved people that he owned during the course of his life would beg to differ, that all men are indeed created equal. And that was one of the founding fathers. And that's a microcosm of the paradox that this country was built on. This country was built not only on the backs of black people, but at the expense of several other people groups. That is the paradox baked in to the reality of who and what America is. And like I said before, this moment where we, I believe, can all agree that something is and has been wrong for a long time is a moment to also look back and say, there is a foundational sin in America that must be dealt with. In my opinion, and I've held this opinion for a long time, must be repented of. And, you know, I go to um, Second Chronicles um, in reference to these uh, passages that may help us with this. Second Chronicles 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. As many things as we can disagree on, whether it be white privilege, which you alluded to in terms of um, having to reconcile with white privilege being something that you have benefited from. People, to address that very quickly, what they can hear is, are you saying I haven't worked hard to get where I've got to, especially in a country that um, believes in and espouses the American dream. Anyone can become anything. And so that is a reality in America, the beauty of the American dream. That's why I moved here from the UK. It is a reality, but there is a paradox that the privileges and the opportunities you are afforded by virtue of the color of your skin differ from mine. And that is wrong. And if we can start there, that there are certain things that are wrong, and we can see that God places promise in situations where there is an acknowledgement of wrong, and that acknowledgement leads to repentance, and the promise is to heal our land, I think if we can agree that something is wrong, we can also agree that this land needs healing. And so what I would love to address, you know, less from a secular point of view, but more for us as the body of Christ, is how do we combat this thing on multiple fronts? Yes, there's policy. Yes, there are bills to be passed. Yes, there's systemic racism. But I truly believe the way for this land to be healed is to go up against those principalities and powers in the high places. And the way we do that, as far as I can tell from looking at the Bible, is to start with acknowledgement, which leads to repentance. There are so many overt things, but describe from your vantage point, as a black man, as a follower of Christ, describe for me how much our land is on fire right now. Well, this land has been on fire, I would say, for centuries. The sheer amount of bloodshed when it comes to how this land was wrested from Native Americans or the brutal nature of the Middle Passage of bringing Africans to this country, how many were treated as less, far less than human, far less than animal. Even more recently, you know, the civil rights movement and the, the, the blood that was shared of leaders, Dr. King being the most famous. Um, when you think about the, the, the Mexican-American war, uh, when you think what was done to uh, uh, Asians in this country as well, there is so much history, there is so much blood in the soil. And we know as Christians that that has ramifications. It just does. Um, 
One of the uh, passages it, that, that takes me to is uh, Psalm 51, mm. verses 14 to 17. It says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. He will not despise a contrite heart or a broken spirit. But where it really speaks to me is where it says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. I would argue that George Floyd was a sacrifice a sacrifice that brought this country to its knees yet again around this issue. I would argue that Dr. King was a sacrifice to galvanize us to look at this issue. Of course, we believe Jesus was a sacrifice to get our attention. But it says here that that is not God's ideal. God's ideal is not George Floyd as the means to get our attention. God's ideal is not for his son. Who wants to have to kill their son or have their son be sacrificed in order to get humanity's attention? His ideal is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But we as people, just refuse to Mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. We always push through pride and God consistently needs to grab our attention on a micro, micro level. My resistance to God as a teenager was exactly that. I can do this on my own. Why do I need this God? But in a state of brokenness upon the realization that I need more than myself, I was able to step into the promise. I was able to step into a Zoe life, an abundant life. Most of us wait till we have things in our lives that bring us to our knees in order to turn up. And they are tend to be tied to a sacrifice, that brokenness, that weakness in which he is strong. And that is what is happening in this nation. The civil war was a moment. Listen, listen, there is something wrong. If you look at what brought about some of the gains in the civil rights movement, it was the Emmett Till being murdered, that, 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 that young boy who supposedly whistled a, a, a white lady and was, was, was killed and and was thrown into a river and decomposed grossly. And his mother made the choice to have his decayed body on display to show the world. And that's what led to the Montgomery bus boycott because then Rosa Parks in the same year, 1955, said, no, I'm not going to sit at the back of the bus. And that led to 381 days of protest where black people said, we are not going to ride your buses until you desegregate them. But that started with a sacrifice. It started with the sacrifice of Emmett Till. Mm. At Selma in 1965, 10 years later, when Dr. King was pleading, begging, imploring 
for black people to be able to have the vote and no one was listening. He decided to have a march in Montgomery, Alabama. No one was listening. People started coming in upon his call. But it took James Reeb, a preacher, dying, being killed by racists who were saying, how dare you march with these, with these black people? They killed him, a man of God. And then a lady called Viola Liuzzo, who was taking uh, uh, protesters back home that, that night after the march, was also murdered. That was a sacrifice that galvanized the country to pay attention. Bloody Sunday, which also happened at that time, was another moment where people were beaten black and blue. Americans were watching their televisions, couldn't believe this was America. It galvanized the attention. And something that had been being asked by Americans for, for tens of years, tens of years. I, I, I did a film called Lincoln. In that film, I played a unionist soldier. And my character asks uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln in the form of Daniel Day-Lewis playing that role, when will we as black people get the vote? That was in 1865. In Selma, the film Selma, I play Dr. King who is going up to Lyndon Johnson and asking the very same thing a hundred years later, 1965, same actor asking the same thing through two characters over a hundred years. That demonstrates how long people were asking for the right to vote. But it took people dying to galvanize the attention of America. And the march was in March of 1965. The Voting Rights Act was passed in August. It took that. Why do we keep on waiting till there is a sacrifice rather than what God says is his ideal, which is a broken spirit and a contrite heart? There was this moment that you read in 2 Chronicles 7, and just for some biblical history to understand that this is after King Solomon, the son of King David, has built the temple. Mm -hmm. He has consecrated the temple. The fire of the Lord pours out upon this residing home for the glory of God. And then immediately after that, as it says in 2 Chronicles 6, as Solomon successfully accomplished all that he had set out to do for the Lord, that's when the Lord turns to King Solomon and says, if you want the land to be healed, you have to humble yourself. Right. He just built the temple, but the land was still on fire. Right. It still needed healing. Yeah. After all of those good deeds, God comes to him and says, if you want the land to be healed, if you want me to hear your prayers, you have to humble yourself, you have to pray, you have to seek the Lord, and you have to repent or turn from your evil ways. Right. What does humility, the first step in that look like right now, for me, from your point of view, I'm your brother in Christ, mm. what does humility for me look like, defined by you? You can either believe black people when they talk about white privilege as a reality that defines the lack of privilege they have, or you can decide to not believe us and be obstinate and so therefore not have an open heart, an open enough heart 
to entertain the contrition and the communal brokenness that we need to have as brothers in order to link arms and face this, this racism, this situation together. Because the very denial of the truth of my pain and my people's history, whether it be as a Nigerian uh, uh, who has, uh, uh, from a country that has dealt with the, the repercussions of colonialism, or as someone who has lived in Europe and dealt with the, the systemic racism that is very much entrenched there now, or as someone who now lives here in America and has black children growing up as Americans, who, I'm sorry, but your son, when he is of driving age and has an interaction with the police, as things stand at the moment, the reality is you probably don't have to entertain the thought that he may not come home alive by virtue of an interaction with the police, as is the case for me. And that's a privilege you have that I am broken at the fact that I don't. Mm -hmm. I have an 18-year-old son, and whenever he leaves in his car, my wife and I have that moment. We just have that moment in our minds. And I would love to have the privilege not to have that moment mm. in my mind. And so, you know, you talk about Solomon there, but we know that Solomon's father was David. Mm. And there is um, a story that I'm sure, you know, most people know about David and Bathsheba. And David was at war, but he himself wasn't in that war. He was idle. He was in a, a place of success um, and he saw Bathsheba and he decided he wanted her because he could. He exercised his privilege as the king, despite the fact that Bathsheba was married to Uriah and he slept with her. And in a bid to cover up his sin, he brought Uriah home, tried to get Uriah to sleep with his wife to disguise and mask any potential um, of accusation of sin. But Uriah, being an honorable man, didn't just go home and sleep with his wife. He slept at the gate and David was in a panic. So what did he do? He orchestrated the murder of Uriah by putting him at the front lines. And Nathan, a prophet, came to him and told him a story of a man who had a you, who was precious to him, and a man who had several. And this man was forced to sacrifice the one thing, the one you he had, in light of this other man who had so much. And David was outraged at the injustice of that. And Nathan said to him, that's you. That's what you just did to Uriah. And as a result, Bathsheba went on to have a child. And Nathan, having highlighted David's sin, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. He admitted, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, 
the son born to you will die. There are ramifications for the privilege that we exercise in the brutalization of other people. But the act of repentance meant that he went on to have Solomon with Bathsheba. There is redemption beyond repentance. And Solomon is the line through which we eventually have Jesus. Generational curses are real. We break them off each other when we're praying for each other. The Bible demonstrates that they are real. And the thing that brings the promise of God is repentance and admission that we have done something wrong. David exercised his privilege over Uriah. He just did. There is no getting away from it. Thomas Jefferson exercised his privilege despite saying all men are created equal. He just did. And therefore a system is in place that means that you, my brother Drew, are a beneficiary of the American paradox that if it isn't broken, there will continue to be Uriahs. George Floyd is a Uriah. He just is. Because the reality is, if that were a black man, if Derek Chauvin were a black man with his knee on a white man's neck, it's an entirely different conversation. Mm. And I would argue it's an entirely different conversation for the church. Because partly why you and I are having this conversation is because I have seen more activity, more receptivity, more openness, and more action from beyond the church than within the church. And that's heartbreaking. Especially when it goes back to God's heart, which right. predates any political party. Right. Because some I know will watch this and say, you're just being political. Right. And I've had that over my career as a, as a preacher and pastor where I will go to God's word and preach on a topic that is thousands of years written down that has its heart in the eternalness of God and yet many of the hearers only hear dialogue or conversations about that topic in a politically partisan context. Right. On the news, in debates with others. And for you and I to sit down in church, fully acknowledging that it is those outside of the church that seem to have the activity of justice, which God calls God's people to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe the church is so slow or so reticent to jump in with God and to undo the sin that is all around us. One of the things um, I deeply admire about Dr. King was despite a lot of pressure, he never aligned himself with a political party. Um, the other person who I really admire who never did that was Jesus. His ministry was at a time of political turmoil. It was at a time where he was going up not only against the political establishment, but the religious establishment. He 
consistently said, I will not do anything unless my father tells me. The reason for that was God operates outside of the broken systems we have of politics. There's a reason why God said, really, you want these judges? You, you really want, want me to give you judges? You want these fallible people to, to, to be the arbiters of what you do and don't do? It was something he resisted because he knew how fallible we are. Now, despite the fact that the Bible advocates for honoring our leaders and praying for them, the idea that the church can become co-opted by a political party or a political movement, whether it be a liberal one or a conservative one, is just not biblical. And the concern I have at the moment is that the paralysis I am sensing from the church is tied to partisan politics, is tied to if I speak out for these black and brown voices who are crying for help. Black Lives Matter is a plea. It is a, it is a cry from the heart because it is not yet a reality. It just isn't. We are saying it because we are affirming it. It is, an, it is something that we need. Now, when people combat that, with all lives matter, that is aspirational. It is not a reality yet. The lack of that reality is the very reason people are shouting black lives matter in the streets. And the reason I bring that up, I feel like that is also a stumbling block for the church. But, but how can it be a stumbling block if one of the prostitutes or one of the tax collectors or one of the disciples who Jesus eventually embraced was, was crying out for help at their brokenness and there were others, whether the religious establishment or other believers who were more mature in their faith were saying, why are you focusing over there? We are over here. What did Jesus say? I came for the broken. Mm -hmm. I came for the broken, the parable uh, of, the, of the 99. If that one sheep who was lost, that the shepherd went to save, if the 99 said, what about us? In that moment, it's very clear what the Bible is advocating. I, I've, I've got to go for the lost. I've got to go for the broken. I've got to go for that sheep who's bleating for help because they, they, they have, are disenfranchised. So when Thomas Jefferson says, all men are created equal, and that slave of his says, I don't feel that I'm created equal. And we, the church, just focus on what Thomas Jefferson said. It's just not the Bible. It's not. Unfortunately, as a Christian in my industry, if I talk about being a Christian, the assumption now is instantaneously that I'm conservative, that I am pro this, that, and the other, and that my opinions, my outlook on life is in this box. The church has allowed that to happen. And we are in a moment right now 
where we can reframe that narrative. Mm -hmm. Because the systemic racism, the brokenness that people feel, the tears that people are shedding, where is our comfort to come from? Now you and I are talking because we have spoken and I can hear how affected you are by my pain. That is Jesus. And when I look to the church and I don't feel that as a Christian, what are these kids who are marching in the street feeling in this moment? They have their arms up. They are prostrate on the ground. They are in states that we as the church recognize as supplication, as self-sacrifice, as brokenness. And we are not there with the nets to be fishers of men, to be fishers of the broken. Why? Because we think in some way it is going to be us aligning ourselves with a political system mm -hmm. or party that doesn't chime with our cultural Christianity, as opposed to what God is doing in this moment. There is no accident why during a pandemic we are in this place. God doesn't want a sacrifice, but he'll take it. He'll take it. And if the ultimate meaning that comes from this disproportionate amount of black and brown people who have died from COVID becomes, if their legacy becomes the fact that this country fundamentally changed along the lines of race, I think we can all say, okay, Lord, I see what you were doing there. But we have got to align ourselves with what is happening in the spirit. I am telling you, Drew, there is an opportunity for this country to come into a place of repentance that like David, leading to Solomon, will lead to a healing of this land. But if we the church don't lead it, if we the bride of Christ don't lean into it, it will continue to be co-opted by politics, and we, the church, will become irrelevant in one of the most crucial inflection points in this country's history, which would be tragic. A lack of repentance allows for legal ground for the devil to run riot. And if David had not repented, I just don't know that we have Solomon and the legacy. And let's not even begin to entertain what that means that Solomon led to Jesus. Because we believe now is the time where action is not what political parties are calling us to, but what the Lord is calling us to. What does that break open in the spiritual realm when we do that? Well, I go back to Jesus. When he died, that did not look good for what Christianity has gone on to become. But his death, his sacrifice, split time and changed the world forever.
and what it looked like was completely different to what was happening in the spiritual realm. And if we don't attack this thing in the spiritual realm, but we only look at what's happening in the natural, this land cannot and will not be healed. That is a biblical precedent. You know, to, to, to go to a passage of scripture that I believe um, supports exactly what you are saying, Jeremiah 22, it says, this is what the Lord says, do what is just mm. and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Can we agree that black people were stolen from a continent and brought here to work for free and that we went from slavery to sharecropping to now the prison industrial complex. Still a disproportionate amount of black and brown people working for free. It is a business, whether you like it or not. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if we are careful to carry out these commands, the kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace riding in chariots and on horses accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I will swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. Mm -hmm. Repentance comes with a promise and a lack of repentance comes with a promise as well. Earlier you referenced the 99 sheep and the one and how the shepherd went to get the one. Mm -hmm. And in Luke 15, Jesus says the next parable being a woman who goes looking for one coin that is lost from a stack of 10. And then a father who runs with love towards the younger son upon returning home. And the twist, and I preached on this a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. is the elder brother. Yeah. And that story ends with the elder brother basically saying, I'm paraphrasing, my brother's life doesn't matter. I want to matter. Don't both your sons matter? And the father says to the son, but you've always had me. You've always had the privilege of being here with all of this. But my son who experienced separation is now home. Won't you also come in and celebrate? And I feel like there are many, and sadly many in the church, that are the older brother in this moment because they've fallen out of a dynamic relationship with God the Father, right. and they've followed into religiosity, right. much like the Pharisees yeah. of the first century. And that's who Jesus was telling that story to. Yeah. And there can be a pushback on lifting up a particular segment of our family 
not just family within church, but our family within the greater humanity, I believe because it comes from a elder brother, pharisaical perspective. And so this fork in the road moment, I believe every person who's listening has to come to grips with is my primary identity out of the overflow of a relationship with God through Jesus, or is it something else, a political party, my family of origin, some other worldview that I've fallen into? And that on the individual level, if it's anything other than a relationship with God that drives us forward to listen, to learn, to lead, and to love, that we have to repent from that personally. What do you say to the church who longs to be part of what God is doing? The first thing I would implore is to please God against offense in relation to anything we've said, in relation to what people who have been hurt and broken and marginalized and are not of the church or part of the body of Christ have said, things that people who are not part of the political party or persuasion that any of them as individuals or corporately may have. And like Jesus did, focus on the humanity and the inhumanity. And I just know that repentance as a church, as a nation, is going to have ramifications that no bill, no politician, no policy is going to be able to be as healing and redemptive as that. None. And this repentance, Scripture says, is repentance that we can do both for the sins of our ancestors yeah. and the sins that we've committed. Right. But I also look at a recent experience, and it was in the last month, and I was doing the dishes, and my wife was right by the front door, and the doorbell rang. Mm. She opened the door, and I could hear a man's voice. And he said, hi, sorry to interrupt you today. I'm actually white, but I've spent so much time outside that I've gotten so dark, so forgive me if I look black. And I'm here to sell some cleaning supplies. And I didn't walk over to that man and tell him that he is so beloved, that he doesn't need to apologize that he doesn't have to start a conversation with a white woman by saying what he did. And I was silent. And I'm here to say I'm sorry to you and all of my black and brown brothers and sisters, not only in the church, but in society. And I don't want it to be my silence like that moment was that defines this season. What you've just said is my personal plea. I've already said Black Lives Matter is a plea. But white silence is a position. It's a position taken and it's detrimental to me and people who look like me. 
And it's even more dangerous when it's the church. So I love you for saying that and for having the strength and the fortitude to say that and apologize for that and to demonstrate the example of that. Because I think so much of what we're dealing with is people's pride and ego and not wanting to be accused of things that they indignantly refuse to accept are either things they've done or benefited from. So much of the healing is going to come from the humility just to say, I have sinned and fallen short. This country has sinned and fallen short. And we're sorry. Then God will move. I will hear your prayer and heal your land. And on the other side of that, the great movement of God that God's been longing for. I believe it. And God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for this. Love you so much. You too. I love you too.